You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Amen. You can take a seat. And as you do, I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the, it's the beginning of the Bible, part of the, the Pentateuch. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, flip over there to Deuteronomy with me. We're going to read uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Through nine, very famous passage of scripture. Uh, this is known in Jewish world and Hebrew world as the Shema, uh, the Shema of Israel. And so, let's begin uh, uh, with this passage. I'm going to read it aloud. You can follow along. These words are given to us by the prophet Moses, but they come to us today uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And, and because of that, they come to us today with authority. With power, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Well, every Tuesday night... uh, the Tuesday night, we got any Tuesday night uh, South Buckhead small group folks here today? Okay, that was pretty weak, but uh, let's try that again. We got any Tuesday night South Buckhead small group folks here? All right, all right. So every Tuesday night between like 35 and 50 even, young adults, ages, you know, 22 through 30 or so come over to our house, and it's, it's, it's awesome. We look forward to it every week. It's, it's one of Paige and I's and probably the kids' favorite time of the week, you know, John Kellis. And Rainer and Emriana, you know, get to, to run around with all the folks that come over. And it's a really good time. But, you know, of course, last week, if you were here, we started this series on family worship or family discipleship. And so you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do for any of these, like, 25-year-old single people? Like, what are they going to get out of this whole series? And we're going to be in this series today, and then we'll be in it also next week. And, you know, I, I want to share with you what I think that you're going to get out of it. The, the, the first thing that you need to realize if you're single or if you know, you're married with no children or maybe you're kind of past the age of child rearing, the first thing you need to realize is that this is really a series on disciple making. It's really a series on discipleship and disciple making. We're just applying disciple making to the home. How are you going to be an intentional disciple maker in your home? But really, if you're just an intentional disciple maker at all, these are really good things for you to be thinking through. So first of all, it's a series on discipleship. We're just giving it a particular application. But secondly, if you are single, if you don't have children yet, if you're single and hope to be married with a family someday, you know, when I uh, was young and single, uh, I would often think about my wife, my future wife. Uh, I would call these my Mrs. D's moments. And, you know, I'd be somewhere, like I remember this one day, 
uh, I was taking some classes for my MDiv overseas, and, and we went over to Wales one day and went to this place called Tintern Abbey. I don't know if any of y'all have been there. It was just this magnificent place, and, and uh, it, it's this old kind of abbey that's fallen in, but there's grass, and it was just this beautiful day, and um, and then later we went to Cardiff Castle and toured around there, which is kind of an amazing sight. And I remember I, I was, man, I really wish Mrs. Dees was here right now. Of course, I didn't know there was no Mrs. Dees. I didn't know Mrs. Dees. But I just had that thought. I wish Mrs. Dees was here. This would be a fun thing to enjoy with my wife. So I even went that day there in Cardiff, and I bought this little necklace uh, for Mrs. Dees. And, of course, you know, one day... Four years later, I gave it to Paige. And before you ooh and ah, the point of that story is not to say that I'm kind of a cheesy, hopeless romantic. It's to say that I, I thought about marriage, I thought about family before my wedding day, right? I had future thoughts. And, and, and you, I'm sure if you're single or if you're married and without children or hoping to be married someday, you had the same thing. You, you've thought about your family. You've thought about what you want your marriage and your family should be like. And I would just say a central component of, of a Christian family is this component. It's family discipleship. What does discipleship look like in your home? What is it going to look like in your home someday when you are when you are married, when you do have a family, what does that look like? How have you even thought about that? Are you preparing for that? And so men, if you're a man here, if you're married with a family, if you're single hoping to be married, I, I just want to say to you, do you realize that you are called to be the head of your home? That one day you will stand before the Lord and give an account of how you led your family, of how you shepherded and took care of your family. Are you preparing for that? Are you preparing to do well with that, this, this command, this, this charge that the Lord has given you? And, and for you ladies out there, you know, as you're, as you're married, as you're hoping to be married, has, are you thinking about disciple making in the home? And if you're single and hoping to be married, you know, is the guy that you're dating right now the kind of guy that you think will disciple you well? Is the guy that you're dating right now the kind of guy that you think will disciple your children well? And, and, and if he's not, that should be like your number one criteria. If you're going to submit to him as, as a spiritual leader over you, well, well, how can you submit to a man that, that can't disciple you well? So I, this is a great thing. Am I putting all this? This is a great thing for all of us. Married, past marriage, you know, past child rearing, uh, preparing to be married, it's, it's a great thing for all of us to be thinking about today. And if you're here with us last week, Blake, of course, uh, preached uh, for us, and he preached on the why of family worship. Why are we even talking about this? Why is this important for us to be thinking about? And Blake talked a lot about legacy. He was preaching from the book of Joshua, and he talked about Joshua's kind of long-term vision for Israel, but I think that's a great thing to think through. I'm not going to recap Blake's whole sermon, but just to think through, do you have any sort of a long-term vision for your family? Do you have any sort of a long-term vision for the spiritual health of not just your children, but your grandchildren and, and your great-grandchildren, the generations that are going to follow after you? Do you have a long-term vision for who your family is going to be? Do you have a long-term vision for 
what your family's going to do, for how they're going to shape this community, for how they're going to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. You know, a few uh, months ago, or maybe about a couple months ago, I wrote a letter, and I talked about Atlanta in the year 2100. And it was, uh, it's, I've read some sociological studies. You know, some people believe that Atlanta in 2100 will be one of the three biggest cities in the United States. There's, there's no boundaries. There's no sort of, you know, uh, you know, natural boundaries around Atlanta. And, you know, with, with driverless cars and with infrastructure improvements and all these kinds of things, people think, you know, Atlanta could be uh, one of the top three cities, top three largest cities in the United States in the year 2100. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, but it's certainly one of the things that Paige and I thought about when we came over here to plant Christ's covenant. You know, what Atlanta needs, whether it's, you know, the third biggest city or the 10th biggest city or the 100th biggest city, are strong churches that love and know the gospel, full of people that love each other, that are cared for well, that are willing to be ambassadors in a secular world who are on mission for Christ. And we wanted to be a part of starting a movement like that in this city to, to plant healthy churches of people that know and love God and his word. And, and in 2100, obviously we hope and pray that this church is still here and that the influence of this church will not have only spread out through the inside of the perimeter of Atlanta, but, but all throughout uh, the city and, and even all over the world. But do you have any sort of a long-term vision for what God is going to do? Are, I mean, are we preparing as a church well for 2100 if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back? Are we, are we going to be ready? Are we, are we preparing for God's kingdom work uh, through our simple faithfulness now for what God can do over time and over a long period of time? But I'll tell you this, the most important way, I think, that you, particularly if you're a parent, can be preparing for what God is going to do in the future is to disciple your own children well. If our children and grandchildren don't love this gospel and don't love God's word and don't love this mission that we have been called to, then we, we might as well give up on 2100, on the year 2100. And so this is such an important conversation for us to be having. Uh, you know, I, I am so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for even for this week uh, it was an amazing week. We had Vacation Bible School this week. It's our first ever Vacation Bible School. And I'll be honest. I'll, I'll be very honest. I was a little nervous. Vacation Bible School is a big thing to pull off. I mean, four days, all these kids coming up here. Can we, this little church, actually do this and do it well? You know, will anybody come back the second day, right? You know, or are their kids going to go home and be sick and complain? And, and I just think, I am just so proud of, of Jess and Blake and Danielle and so many of you who led in this amazing way. It was an awesome week. And, of course, right now we have uh, our students at Fripp Island. We just got a report back that they're doing so well. And these are small seeds uh, that are growing, and God is at work, and big things are happening and, uh, and, and there was faithful, there was a faithful presentation of the gospel throughout this week. And so I'm so grateful for what we're doing corporately. But this morning, I want to think about what are we doing as individual families, fathers and mothers, people preparing for marriage. What are you doing? What are you going to be doing to intentionally and actively in an organized way, in a planned out way, disciple 
your children. So this is really the, the what of family worship. What are we talking about here? We're talking about having an intentional, focused plan, being, having something that you're going to execute, something you're thinking about. How am I discipling my family? In the same way that we as a corporate body are thinking, okay, how are we discipling our church body? How are we in small groups? Do we have elders overseeing them? How, what are we teaching them? Okay, do we, we need some progress for the children. Are we doing VBS? In the same way that we're thinking about discipling this corporate body, are you fathers and mothers in particular, thinking about, are you husbands thinking about the way that you're discipling your wife? Are you parents thinking about the way that you are discipling your family? And what does that plan look like? In, in some ways, there, there should be this kind of, at least a sketch of a, a plan. How am I going to do this over the course of the, in most cases, 18 years that this child is living under my roof and in my home? And, and that's really what I want us to think about Today, if you were here again last week, Blake um, talked about Joshua. He talked about these being the words that he preached last week, some of Joshua's last words. And here again, this week, we're in Deuteronomy, and in the same kind of way, this is Moses' last big sermon. Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. This is Moses kind of, and really what it is, is it's the very end of Moses' life, him saying, all right. All, here's, here's all my good stuff, right? It's, it's the preacher's last sermon. This is my last big sermon. I'm going to throw it all out to you. I'm going I'm to press God's law, God's truth into your heart one last time. And here, right at the very beginning of it, he is saying these words, these words that I'm about to give to you, these truths that I'm about to give to you need to be on your heart and they need to be passed down from one generation to the next. Now, next week... I'm going to get really practical and talk about the how of family worship. How do you do this? What is, it, what is a planned uh, sort of time of family discipleship look like? But again, today I really want to focus on this, this idea of the what, and this passage teaches us much about that. So the first goal, the first, the first purpose, the first goal of family worship that we see in this text is that your family would know who God is. Uh, the passage begins with God saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, in the ancient Near East, there was an understanding of God that there were, there was many gods. Uh, they had territorial gods. So you would leave the jurisdiction of one god and move into the jurisdiction of uh, another god. Different gods ruled. They believed that different gods ruled over different territories. They had gods for different purposes, right? So uh, there was a god of fertility. There was a god of the weather. There was a god of war. There was a god of all these different purposes. Whatever you kind of needed, whatever you had going on in your life right now, there was a god for that. There was some sort of god that you could pray to, that you could make sacrifice to, and he would help you out. So in the ancient Near East, the dominant belief system of the time was it was a belief in many gods that fit the individual's need. And you know what? Here in 2018, that's the same belief system that we have today. Many gods that fit the individual's need. And what I mean by that is, is most of what I encounter in the world today is people framing God in a way that kind of works for them. This is, this is the God that kind of works for me. 
This is the God that I kind of need to worship. I remember one of the very first evangelistic conversations that I ever had with an adult. Okay, I mean, it's a very poignant memory in my life. I was probably 13 or 14 years old, and somehow I started talking to my next-door neighbor. I mean, this is kind of a scary thing to even think about now. 13 years old, I was talking to my, you know, the, the mom that lived next door. And I don't even know why I started talking to her. But maybe I was standing out in my yard. I started talking. Her name was Nancy Elliott. So I'm talking to Miss Nancy. And uh, we start talking about God. And, you know, I've been learning things in my church. And my dad had been teaching me all these things. And so, you know, somehow we got onto the topic of God's judgment. And I remember Nancy Elliott said, well, my God would never do that. You know, and my God's not like that. And, and I have had that same conversation dozens and dozens of times since then, where somebody starts to frame God. Well, my God is like this, and my God is like that. But, but don't you see, this is the dominant belief system of America today, but don't you see when you start doing that, and some of you talk about God that way, when you start doing that, you don't really have God. And when you start doing that, you are God. And you're creating an idol that suits your needs. You're creating an idol that, that you like. You're, you're making God to be in your image rather than being conformed into his image. And I just want to say, most Americans, this is the predominant, I believe, belief system in the Western world. You know, Tim Keller once said, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, Will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? Only when God outrages you, only when God thinks that really make you struggle, that's what relationship is like. If, if someone always agrees with you, that's not a friend, that's a puppet. If you have a, a wife or a husband that always agrees with you, that's, as you know, that's not reality, that's not a spouse, that's a robot, and what's interesting about Americans is even though most of us, rather than, again, rather than being conformed into God's image, we want to create a God that's conformed into our image. Even though most of us are doing that, what's interesting about Americans is that most of us name that God Jesus. We like some of the components of Jesus, and so we, we name our idol Jesus, and we kind of say, well, he's, this is Jesus. You recognize him. But it's not Jesus. It's our idol that we've just named to be Jesus. It's interesting, in 2006, Richard Dawkins wrote this essay called Atheists for Jesus. Okay? Now, Richard Dawkins, if you don't know who he is, he is a, he's a famous atheist. He, he, he is the, they've called him Darwin's watchdog. Right? He, he rejects, not just, he not, doesn't just reject theism, he hates theism. He thinks that he wrote a book in the same year, it was published 2006, called The God Delusion, where basically he just said theism is an evil belief system. But that same year, he wrote this uh, little essay called Atheist for Jesus. And in the essay, Dawkins said, Dawkins talks well of Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus was an enlightened man. He, he, he taught many, many good things. And even says, if Jesus would have lived today, then he would have been an atheist. If Jesus would have been alive right now, he would have, of course, been an atheist. Do you see what Richard Dawkins is doing? Now, Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in God, but even Richard Dawkins is trying to make Jesus to be in his image. 
He's trying to take the identity of Jesus and fit it with his own. And this is why Deuteronomy 6 is so powerful in ancient times, and it's so powerful right now. I want you to hear this. This is where God steps in and he says, you can't do that. I'm not something to be crafted. I am who I am. I am one. And I can be known. And I have an identity that is full and real and whole. You don't get to define me. I define myself. I am God. In fact, you, I defined you. I spoke you into being. You don't get to define me. I define you. Now, I know that modern people hear that, and some of you may be hearing that and say, well, that's kind of narrow, right? It's kind of narrow to say, well, there's only one God. There's only one, there's only one way to define God. That, that's kind of narrow in today's uh, world. And, and I would say, look, that you are no less narrow-minded if you say that there's only one way to define you. You know, I don't get to define you in whatever way I want. I don't get to say, oh, you know, Brett, he's like this and he's like that and just totally make things up. No, I, he is who he is. And I have to get to know him or I don't know him. I, I, uh, Paige is not here today. She's at her family reunion in Virginia. And I, I drove up with her on Friday. And uh, we, were, we had just crossed the South Carolina line. Okay, so Friday morning, just across the South Carolina line, I get a phone call, and uh, the, I answer, and the guy on the other line says, Jason. And I said, yes. And he said, where are you? You're supposed to be here. Are you coming? And I, and I you know, you ever have that moment? And I'm like in South Carolina. Like, and uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, did I book something f- during, you know, overlapping with Paige's family reunion? And, I'm, you know, I've, I've definitely done that before. Um, and uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm so sorry, uh, you know. And uh, then the other voice said, is this Jason the plumber? <laughs> and I said, no, it's Jason the pastor. And he said, I have got the wrong Jason. But in, I tell you that story because what I fear so bad for, for you and for so many Westerners is on the day that you actually see the real Jesus, you realize that you've had the wrong Jesus all along. Not the Jesus that he revealed himself to be, not the Jesus that he says he is, but some Jesus that you made up. And so the first goal of family worship is that you and your family would know God, not who you say he is, but who he is. Second goal of family worship It's not that you would just know God, but you would love God, and you would really love God. Look at the text here, verse 5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is a a transforming kind of love, a love that changes every part of you, heart, soul, might. This is all directed at God. Is this what's true of your home? Are you a family? Are you an individual? Are you a family that that loves the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your might. Is your, is your life transformed by the love of God? You, you can't hide love. You can't hide love. Man, if you're, if you're really in love with someone, if you're really taken by someone, you can't hide it. It's known. Is that the way that your family is? Is your, is your family known by who you love? Do you love God in this kind of transforming, life-altering way? How does your love for God transform your life? How does it transform the way that you spend your time and money and energy? 
is, does your love for God create priorities in your life? You prioritize for what you love. It, does, does God's place in your life have any sort of a priority? Does your time with him have any sort of a priority in your life? Do you prioritize spending time with the Lord? Or is it just something you do if you have some extra time left over? Do you prioritize it in how you give to the Lord and how you give to his ministry? You know, you know Paige and I give by, by draft, but we always have, it, we always have our, our gift to the, the church, gift to the Lord, the first thing that's drafted. And again, you may say, well, you know, and I'm not saying that's a law or anything, but it's just a symbol for us. It's a statement for us. We, we want to prioritize this in our lives. Is your ministry, whatever ministry you're doing for the Lord, is that what you prioritize in your life? Is that where you begin with scheduling? Or is all of this just an afterthought? You can't hide what you love. And has, is this what is true of your family? Has, has the Lord so captured your heart? Has the Lord so captured your life that, that you prioritize him, that, that, that you love him? That's a transforming love. You know, a few weeks ago we published a, a podcast on the Think Through It podcast, and you know Matt Hall, who preached here a month or and a half ago or so, he was on the podcast and he did a wonderful job. And we, if, I really commend it to all of you. We talked about adolescence. We talked about raising children on the podcast, and of course, Matt referenced the statistics that you hear, and you guys hear these statistics. You know, when when kids go to college, you know, X number of huge percentage of them end up leaving the Christian faith, and they're always these big percentages, and they're always very alarming percentages. But, but I appreciated what Matt said on the podcast, and I, and I really believe it to be true. He said that most of the students that are you know, walking away from the Christian faith when they get to college aren't really walking away from the Christian faith. What they're walking away from to quote you know, a famous kind of statement by Christian Smith, they're walking away from a moralistic therapeutic deism that they've kind of learned in their churches or in their families or through their culture. They're not walking away from a truly transformed heart. They're not walking away from the gospel. They're not walking away from a true knowledge of God. They're walking away from a culturally acceptable form of Jesus that maybe they had in their household, but then they, they need a different kind of Jesus once they get to college because they, they want to do crazier stuff now. There's no parents around. But, and I agree with Matt. I, what I have seen, and I really believe this, for the young people that know the Lord, that, that grow up in homes, that grow up in churches, that disciple them well, that grow up in households where the parents are teaching them God's word, where, where there's a model of devotion to the Lord by mom and dad, where there's a plan of discipleship going on. Most of the time, certainly not every kid, but most of the time, those kids, when they graduate and go to college, not only are they not walking away from the Lord, they're actually growing more significantly in their faith. They're actually taking deeper steps toward the faith. This has been my experience through, you know, 15 years of ministry right now. And, and that's what we so desire for this church. We, we want kids that not just, that don't just claim Christ, but they know Christ. They really know him and they really love him. But parents, let me just ask you, do you really know him? Is the Jesus that you're teaching to your children the real Jesus? And do you really love him? Has, has he transformed your life? You know, Moses says here, he, he sees this coming. He says here, look, 
before he ever gives the people instruction to train their children, you know what he says to the, fo- to the parents? He says, these words need to be on your heart. They gotta be on your heart if you're ever gonna teach them to your children's heart. Do you really know the Lord? Do you really love the Lord? So the goal of family worship is that your family would know the Lord and love the Lord in a transforming way. But, but finally, I wanna be very practical about this. The goal is ultimately, let's go to the next slide here, to create in an environment where you are diligently training your children to know and love Jesus, his word, his church, and his mission. We want you as a family to create an environment where you're diligently, this is the passage says here, diligently train your children. We're diligently training your children to know and love Jesus, his word, his church, and his mission. Now, last year, Imriana took ballet at uh, E. Rivers. And, you know, I, I was happy that she took uh, ballet. I wanted her to take ballet. I thought it was great. And, we, you know, we got her the little shoes and the tights and the, you know, we got her the stuff. And, uh, you know, and I made sure that she got to ballet, you know, do you call it practice? I mean, yeah, I guess ballet practice, rehearsal, whatever it is. I made sure, rehearsal, okay, I made sure that she got to ballet rehearsal on time and, you know, that we picked her up. And, you know, afterward, I'd ask her about it. I'd say, you know, Imriana, um, how did ballet go? You know, did you enjoy it? Did you, you know, did you learn anything? And, and um, look, here's my fear. I feel like there's a lot of parents in churches, and there's probably parents in this church, and you're discipling your kids in the Lord the way that I teach my daughter ballet. See, the, I, don't, I don't know anything about ballet. And so, I, I mean, I've been to the Nutcracker. And, you know, again, I know what, like, first position is maybe. Is it, is it this? You know? But here's the truth. I don't know ballet. I mean, I appreciate ballet. I don't, like, love ballet. And so I can't teach my kids anything about ballet. And what, you know what I have to do? I have to pay a professional to teach my child about ballet. And, and, I, and what, I think if you hear anything from this whole sermon series, here's what I want you to hear. I don't want you as Christian parents to, to treat me and our other pastors here like the ballet teacher, right? We don't want you to see, okay, well, they're going to disciple my kids, right? They're the professionals. They know God's word, right? They know what God teaches, and so they'll do the dirty work, and I'll tithe and stuff because, you know, I you know, certainly want them to do a good job. That's not what we're looking for, right? You know, I've said before, the thing that I don't want to hear from your kids when they graduate from high school and, you know, one day we're going to have a high school graduation thing up here and honor our graduating seniors. You know the thing I don't want to hear from them when they graduate is for them to say that the most influential spiritual person in their life is their student minister or their children's minister. I don't want to hear that. That's your seat, mom. That's your seat, dad. That's your place to have. You are given the responsibility of discipling your children. Yeah, you, you heard me say this all the time. You know, the pastors aren't supposed to be the heroes, right? We're just, I'm just the temple maintenance guy. 
you are the temple. You are the priest. I'm just trying to, we want to equip you. We want to supplement you. We want to come alongside you. We want to give you tools and resources. We want to train you to be able to do this thing that God has called you to do. But it's, it's not our responsibility. We're not, like, we're not the ballet teacher here. And you know what? Here's the deal, guys. This is, so much, this is not an activity. You live in a secular world. And the secular world says to you that your value as a parent, the job that you're doing as a parent, will be determined by how smart your kid is, by how athletic your kid is, how good your kid is at different activities. And ultimately, the value of your parenting will be determined by which college your children can get into someday. And I just want to tell you that all of those things, your kid's athletics, your kid's college, everything else, will matter very little in the grand scheme of eternity. But what will matter forever is this. Are you putting in their heart? Are you diligently training them to love Jesus, to love his word, to love his church, to love his mission? That's the kind of stuff that lasts forever. Everybody else is going to tell you it's the college, it's the sports success, it's their grades. In 10,000 years, this is what you're going to need to know. What are you doing as a parent to stir in their heart a desire, a love for God? And here's what God says to you and to me. These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see how all-encompassing this is? Moses is saying that the word of God should never be far from you. So again, the goal of family worship is to create an environment at home, out in the community, where you are diligently training your children to know and love Jesus, his word, his church, and his mission. And there's so much more to say. Again, next week I'm going to come back and, and talk to you about doing some of these things in particular. But I just want to talk about these big kind of overarching goals with you today um, while we still have some time. First thing that I want you to train and stir your ch children's heart to is a love for Jesus. This seems pretty simple. But I just want to say this. Most Christian parenting, most Christian parenting isn't Christian. I really believe this. Most Christian parenting isn't Christian. Most Christian parenting that I see is moralism. It, it's, it's saying to our children, do better, try harder, be a good boy. That is not Christian parenting. Not really. That's not Christian. You know, when I was a kid, I, I, this was kind of the, the, meth, the message that I got. You know, look, good boys do it like this. If you want to make your Dad proud and God proud, you need to behave this way. You know, good Christian boys behave like this. You should be like this. And that is a moralism that will only teach your child to depend on themselves and not on Jesus. That's the law. And look, the law does have value, right? The law, as Paul says in Galatians, is a guardian, right? So, yes, don't, don't hear me to say that you don't need rules, in your house, you don't need laws in your house. Yeah, the law keeps you from doing some horrible things. The law also, though, convicts us. 
And, and, and Christian parenting, I just want to say this, is helping your children understand that they ultimately can't obey the law. That their souls, that their souls are desperate for a Savior. But a Savior that God has graciously given them in Christ. And so the message of our parenting should never be, try harder, do better. It should be, look to Jesus. He is your hope. The message of, of parenting, what I hope, what my kids to see, is that Jesus actually loves them, and he came to rescue them, and that his plans for them are good and right. Christian parenting is not behavior modification. You hear that? The goal of the Christian life is not that we force ourselves into some Christian mold that is not us. It's not behavior modification. Our goal is not that you're children would have new behavior, it's that your children would have a new heart. That's the goal of the gospel. And listen, you can't do that, I can't do that, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus, only his gospel can transform their hearts and their lives. And so what we want your children to love is not good behavior. We want them to behave well, but because they love Jesus and he's leading them to what is true and what is right. We want your children to, to go beyond the boundaries of the law to freedom in Christ. You know, I've said this before that, you've heard me say this a lot, but the goal of the Christian life is to be free. And you're free when you do what you want to do, when what you want to do is what you ought to do. And this is what Jesus wants to do in your life and what he wants to do in your children's life is not just to mold them to some behavior, but to give them a heart and a desire for what is really true and really beautiful and really right, but that only happens through Jesus. That only happens when they see that he is the king in all of his beauty. That only happens when they see that the God of the universe loves them with a deeper love and with a deeper acceptance than any love and any acceptance that the world can give them. That only happens when they see the beautiful design that Jesus has set in place, that he is restoring all things to. That only happens through Jesus. And so the first goal of Christian parenting is that their, your children would treasure Jesus, but secondly, that they would love his word. Now, as parents, we want to know and love the Bible so we can teach our children to know and love the Bible. God has given us his word for our good. God has given us a clear revelation of himself. You know, I love the old Carl Henry quote, God has forfeited his own privacy so that we could know him. He has, he has shown us who he is. He has displayed to us who he is so that we can know him, and we can know him by what he's revealed to us, by the voice of Christ. This has been spoken through his word, and I want my children, and you should want, your, I want our of our children to treasure the word of Christ. You know, I, I, had, I met some friends uh, here today. I preached at, at this meeting last week, and it was great to be there, um, and it was, you know, down near McDonough, and afterward, this guy came up to me, and uh, he said, we were talking about the Bible, and he said, you know, sir, I, my preacher uh, told me that People in the New Testament didn't really use the Bible. They, they, what, they, what they referred to in the New Testament, these New Testament leaders, he said they referred to just the, the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection. They didn't use the Bible. They didn't have the Bible in the New Testament. And I said to him, I said, well, sir, I hate to break it to you, but it sounds like your preacher has never read the New Testament. Because if you read the New Testament, it is full 
of the Bible. It is full of God's word. It, it's, it's oozing For, throughout the history of the church. The church never had a season where it didn't love the Bible. Just read the New Testament. It's oozing of the Old Testament. All of the sermons, all of the language. It's, people were always dependent on God's revealed word. You know, I talked to him about Peter. I said, you know, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, you'd think if anyone didn't need the Bible, it's Peter after having seen the resurrected Jesus, after being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and what does he do? He goes out and he preaches a sermon from the book of Joel. You know, if you're in preaching class, the, the last thing you want to be assigned is a sermon text from a minor prophet. And that's exactly what Peter goes and preaches. He loves God's word. He loves the whole of God's word. And it's like, what about Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Again, if anyone didn't need the Bible, it's... Because of the power of the resurrection, it's the resurrected Jesus on the day of his own resurrection. And what does Jesus do? In Luke 24, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he tells them all of these things. He goes through the whole Old Testament and says, this is how it's fulfilled in me. The, the point of this is, read through the New Testament, read through church history. The people of faith, the people that really see Jesus are the people that love his word and love all of his word. And this is what we want to pass on to our children, a love an admiration, a knowledge of what God has revealed to us in his word. We want our children to love Jesus, his word. Secondly, we want them to love his church. This is something that has been so lost. In the late 20th and early now 20th first century, the church began adopting kind of business mechanisms for how we understood what we did. And so, rather than having a church, right, which in the Bible is understood as a family, a community, a, ga a gathering of people, we started to understand Christianity as an exchange of goods. The church has started to understand itself as, as the thing that produces the Christian products, right? Apple makes computer products, churches make Christian products, right? And so we produce good sermons, good music, and good children's thing. You come and you give and there's an exchange there, and even if you don't really need the products we produce, give so other people can enjoy them. That's kind of how we've understood what's going on in the church. We've lost how the Bible talks about the church, which is a, a community, a family, a household of faith. We've lost any sense of church membership, that, that we are a part of one another. We've, we've, if you will, kind of given over the big duty to the professional Christians, the, the people that produce these things. This is not what we want to teach our children. This is something we're so committed to here. I, I want our children to understand, no, they are the church. They are the church. Every one of you, every one of our kids, you know, when people join our church, even when their children join the church, you know what I think to myself? I think, ah, God is building his church. He's bringing gifts. He's bringing talents. He's bringing experience that we all need. We're all going to grow from one another. There is a family, a communal component here. And this is the Christian life. You know, as, as we grow vertically in our love for the Lord, by, by virtue of just being Christians, we'll grow horizontally in our love for one another. You know, I've said this before, but the who of the Christian life is Jesus. The what of the Christian life is repentance and faith. The where of the Christian life is the local church. And I just want to say, if you're visiting here, if you're not a member, you need to join a church. It's not to be this church. But you need to be a part of a body. Christianity is not an exchange of good. It's, it's, it's a calling to be a people. It's a calling to be a household of faith, a community of faith in Christ. 
And for our children's sake, you know, I really hope that as our children graduate from here, you know, one of the things I, I say to young people all the time is if you graduate, you know, move on, you go to Auburn, preferably, or, you know, Athens, or, you know, Virginia, or Boston, or wherever you go, what I want to get from those places is letters from churches saying that so-and-so student has joined this church because you're such a good church member and you want to be a part of serving there and, and giving yourself there. I, I have this, just, this great dream is God just sends people out from this place that we would just be sending great church members all over the country for the sake of his glory. We want our children to love Jesus, his word, his church, and then lastly, we want our children to love his mission. As we close, parents, think about this with me. What is it, what is it, or how have you defined success for your children? As you're defining success in your household, what do your children believe is success? What do your children need to do to be successful? How are you defining that for them? Let me put it this way. What mission are you preparing them for? What mission are you preparing them for? What, what mission are you saying, hey, we guys, we you got to be ready for this. And most parents that I know are preparing their children for long, comfortable, self-serving lives. If we have to be honest, that's what we're saying to our children. We want you to live for a long time, be healthy. We want you to be comfortable. We want you to be able to buy whatever you want for yourself. Long, comfortable, self-serving lives. Are we really preparing our children to change the world for Christ? Are we really putting our children on mission for Christ? In some cases, parent, let me ask you this, are you even discouraging your children from being on mission for Christ? Are you the barrier? Are you the one that's holding them back? What dreams are you giving your children to follow? What are you communicating to your children that's truly valuable? Does it line up at all with what God says is valuable? Does it line up at all with the mission that Jesus has called us to? There's so much more to be said on all of this. Please come back next week. But listen, as we close, I know a lot of you right now are feeling like, man, I'm a lousy dad. I'm a lousy mom. I'm failing in these. I have failed in these areas. And you know what? Let me confess something to you. That's the way I feel right now. That's the way I feel. This stewardship that God has given me as a parent to disciple and care for my children is so great. But let me just set you free from something. We don't approach God with the good job or the bad job that we did as parents. We don't hold our righteous parenting before God and say, see, you know, our only standing with God is the righteousness of Christ that he's given to us. And ultimately, we can approach God because we have a great heavenly father. We have a great father who has pursued us and who's calling us home, who's calling us to be his sons and daughters. So rest in that. Rest in the grace and the love that God is giving you. The, the love that God shows to you in Jesus that he was willing to give his son who loved his father, who loved his father's word, who obviously loved this church and who went on the most courageous and sacrificial mission ever 
to bring people like us home. Don't, don't, don't leave here thinking about, don't leave here looking to yourself. Leave here looking to Jesus. Leave here looking to Jesus. Find your identity in him. Find your rest in him. Look to him. But as you look to him, your value will change. The way you spend your time changes. The way you treat all of this will change. If you're really looking to him, don't leave here looking to yourself. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Jesus now would both convict and heal our hearts, that he would teach us in the way that he does um, to value what you value, to love what you love. Uh, Father, I, I do pray for the children of this church, that the parents that are here with this enormous task ahead of them would be faithful in that, and that would diligently train them. So Lord, we, we love you. Uh, I pray, Father, that even just in this time of response, you would move, you would work. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.